Pints with Jack, Season 4, Episode 78. The Silver Chair, Part 1. Well, welcome everybody. Pints with Jack is your weekly C.S. Lewis podcast where David, Matt, and I break down and discuss the works of C.S. Lewis. Earlier this season, we were eavesdropping on Screwtape's letters and listening in on his toast. But today we begin our Narnia book for this season, The Silver Chair. And as a special treat, all of us are here today, Matt, David, and myself. And we are also joined by a special guest and co-host, my wife, Kristen Ditchfield. She's the author of a best-selling, did you want to do that? What? Okay, you took a breath. I wanted to leave the space. I, I'm sorry, I was breathing. <laughs> okay. <laughs> breathing is allowed. We, we got to let you brag for her, Andrew. <laughs> yeah. Okay, yeah. great. Kristen is the author of the best-selling A Family Guide to Narnia, Biblical Truths in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, which has sold over 60,000 copies and has been translated into several languages. A popular conference speaker and syndicated radio host, Kristen has written over 80 other books, including a number of literature curriculum guides, introducing thousands of elementary school students to the world of Narnia. She holds a master's degree in Bible and theology and will soon complete her doctorate in spiritual formation through Northwind Seminary. Like David, I'm married up. <laughs> Welcome, honey. It's great to be with you. You stole the words out of my mouth, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> we're you married up. up. <laughs> and we're praying in that direction for you too. No, I was going to say, I know. We're waiting until the next season with the four loves. That's that's when that's when I find the wife. Yeah, I'm going to marry okay. Matt off and he'll be off my hands forever. He'll be somebody else's responsibility. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. We'll pray in that direction for sure. What have you guys been up to? I've been reading this really good book for the first time. It's this. Uh, it's this fiction the silver book. chair, or the <laughs> and it's uh, it's written by this guy. I don't know if you guys have heard of him. His name's C.S. Lewis. Uh, he's written these. I know some people know him for his nonfiction book, *Mere Christianity*, but he's got these great books that I think children like to read. But I'm just getting around to him as a 30 year old man. And I, I love the way you made sure that you weren't over prepared. When exactly did you start reading *The Silver Chair*? Last night, I got to page 120. I wanted to make sure I was halfway done. And then I woke up this morning and finished the other 120 pages. So <laughs> Matt's commentary is going to be fresh. It's going to be his hot take. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. So within 24 hours, because I did uh, go to mass, which got done at 6 p.m. and it's 5 p.m. today. So um, definitely within 24 hours fresh. <laughs> That's hilarious. But, you know, most people read the Chronicles of Narnia when they're around 10. Matt, when you were 10, Kristen was already writing her book about Narnia. <laughs> you are not oh, supposed to man. point that out, Andrew. That was wow. not the right thing to say. I don't, I'm not sure that's a compliment to either of us. <laughs> <laughs> not either. As a man, I want to be thought of as older. Uh, you went the wrong okay. way with each of us. <laughs> finish, finish reading your fairy tales, and then you got a chance. Of that. <laughs> but your guys's love story gives me hope, still though. Oh, I'm so, so that's a good yeah. thing. And actually, listeners, so we we chatted before we started clicking record. So it seems like I know Kristen, but like this is the first time seeing Kristen, and I've heard a lot through Andrew. And we've been on a recording briefly for Andrew's birthday before, so that was the only other time. So this is. This is all pretty fresh to me. Well, I'm just so glad. I mean, Andrew talks about you all the time, and I know he has just loved being a part of this podcast and getting to know you both. And and uh, he's always uh, happier after uh, after you all have been recording. He's uh, he's been blessed by the conversation and the uh, 
I don't know. I'm just, I'm thrilled to be here and, and to be a part of it. What we always say is Andrew, the reason he fits so well and so easily into it is David and I were, were very much different parts of the spectrum of what we bring to this and our personalities on the podcast, which is why I think it's worked pretty well. Andrew really was a blend between us, like right in the middle. Uh, uh, because he had looks. a lot of... <laughs> <laughs> and Matt's what David what's the other side of that? I, I, I was scrambling for something I, I got nothing <laughs> this is the first time David's quick wit brain which always comes up with something quickly has failed I feel pretty good right now <laughs> he's, he's intimidated by the brain of my wife but that's oh, that's exactly that's right club. that's Andrew oh, redeeming you. himself right now <laughs> it's getting deep <laughs> Well, as we record this, I'm finishing up uh, 12 weeks of clinical pastoral education. I've been a hospital chaplain intern for the last 12 weeks as part of my seminary training. Uh, that's been exhausting and rewarding and exhilarating. It's been fantastic. And in fact, by the way, uh, the Catholic woodworker rosary that you all gave me, I, I put into daily use. I pray it on the way into work. And whenever I have a Catholic patient, in fact, just the other day, I brought it out and had this Catholic patient who just completely lit up when I, uh, and I had a rosary for him too. And, and, uh, and, and so that the gift that you have given uh, continues to bear beautiful fruit. So, and I just uh, did a blurb for compass for deep heaven, which is Diana Glyer's students and their, uh, their collection on the space trilogy. And I'm looking forward to interviewing her later this month. She's one of my favorite people. Oh my gosh. I love it. when we when her and I were chatting and I was interviewing her, we went for two and a half hours, I think. I don't think that's an oh. understatement. And honestly, halfway through, I asked her, like, how are you doing on time? Oh, I'm loving it. Let's keep going. <laughs> and then she would ask me, is it okay if I share this story? I'm like, yeah, <laughs> you can talk as much as you want. This is great. <laughs> she's just, she's fruit, the salt of the earth, honestly. She's amazing. And she's very deliberate about uh, the way she spends her time. So I think that's a huge testimony. So, and we just heard from the president of the Lewis Foundation, Steve Elmore, uh, confirming the retreat, the Camp Allen retreat coming back to Texas. Uh, it will be called Feeding on the Truth, C.S. Lewis and the Psalms. And Kristen and I have been invited to come and talk about reflections on the Psalms. And we also talked about uh, upcoming Oxbridge 2022. So it looks like we'll be able to 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 get there. And then you've got some, you've got a bunch coming up this yeah, fall, right? Yeah, well, it's, it's exciting to finally start putting things on the calendar again. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, there have been so many retreats and conferences that have been canceled and rescheduled and rescheduled and, uh, and we're making firm plans. So I'm looking forward to giving a talk for the C.S. Lewis Institute in the fall, I'm looking at Lewis and fairy stories and, uh, and the gospel and uh, taking the reader unawares with those deep spiritual truths and, uh, and a number of other retreats women's retreats, um, giving some lectures for Northwind Seminary. So a whole bunch of things to prepare for. And that's exciting. It's starting to feel a little bit more normal again. <laughs> I went to the supermarket for the first time without a mask on yesterday. It was amazing. Uh, that's great. <laughs> I, I grinned at any other face that I saw. <laughs> wow. And they, they, they promptly removed your British passport. Well, exactly. I've been here too long. <laughs> <laughs> I'm reading my well, first ever uh, childhood book about Lewis, despite running a Lewis podcast for four years, uh -huh. and only because I have to, <laughs> because well, I'm interviewing Harry, Doctor Harry Lepo. Okay, so, so I'm reading. I'm, I'm reading the becoming C.S. Lewis book of his. Ah, uh, marvelous! So it's not a childhood book that Lewis wrote. It's a book about Lewis as a child. 
Yes, because I've read no biographies of okay. him, and I've the, the closest thing would be the Douglas Gresham, but that was his life, and obviously Lewis right. a little intertwined in that. But I've never read a Lewis biography. I didn't read Douglas Gresham's Lewis biography. I read his Lenten Lands. That's it. So yeah. this is new well, to me. I, that's great. And uh, Hal has got his second volume of that three-part series, I believe he's doing, uh, that has just been released. Um, haven't had a chance to meet Hal in person, but looking forward to that. But I do have a Zoom interview or conversation set up with Norbert Feindendagen, who's this fantastic German scholar. And Norbert has uh, argued with me in print about the dating of early prose joy and Lewis's, uh, Lewis's conversion. And so we're going to get together and talk about all things uh, dimer and conversion. And, and so that's set up for early July. And so lots of fun things happening. I love it. Good. Well, who wants to do the quote of the week? I love to do the quotes of the week. Okay, great. Yeah, away you go. I daren't come and drink, said Jail. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jail, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. Dun, 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 dun. That actually came up in conversation between Kristen and me, so it seemed like an easy get. Well, what are you all drinking today? Are we all synced up or sunk up? What's the right uh, tense of that? Synced up or sunk up? Synced. It depends synced. on how much you've had to drink. <laughs> Next episode, which we record right after this, that might be a different answer. Um, yes. Talisker 10. Yes. Is that what you got to, David? No. So no. I have a themed drink. Since we're going to Ettinsmore, I have a giant-sized can of Foster's, <laughs> and I chose Foster's because it's from Down Under, and over the course oh. of this book, we will be going to Underland. Oh, David, you would do improv so well. <laughs> Very bitter. I expect that to be done by the end of this episode. Okay. Oh, beautiful. Wow. Well, mine is sparkling water because sadly I've discovered that alcohol makes me break out in hives. Oh, so, no. Oh, that is. I, know. I, I don't know if that's but a blessing or a curse. Depends if you're Andrew or Kristen. <laughs> if you're Andrew, you now means you never have to share ever. I yes. know. I'll drink for her. Well, and we're here in Sarasota. A friend of mine just uh, took me to. He said, it's an authentic Irish pub run by an Irishman. And I said, we'll see. And when I got there and there were all of the, the scars from the different um, Premier League teams, uh, I said, okay, well, I think we're in the right spot. And then they had Old Speckled Hen on tap. Ooh. Uh, and you're sold. You're sold. And the only thing that could have been better was Cascale. But, you know, we'll do with what we can. So the Shamrock there on Ringling Boulevard in Sarasota. That's what, yeah, if Kristen's looking for me, you can send her right there. <laughs> so, well, and then Matt, you and I are drinking, um, this is the last of the, one of the bottles that you gave me for Christmas. It's the Talisker 10. Tell us about AKA, it. AKA, time to send a new, a new set. <laughs> I was hoping you'd pick up <laughs> I hear you. He's finally old enough to start reading fairy tales again and look at the good effect it's having. <laughs> I can finally buy alcohol. Yes. yes. So uh, what's the, uh, the, go ahead and give us the rundown if you have it there, Matt. Well, the thing I remember, so I've had, I've had it before. It's obviously very amber. Yep. And we, ha we haven't tasted it yet, but this one's a very oily one. I remember really enjoying Talisker for being very oily. Okay. It says, um, Michael Jackson's book says, pungent, smoke accented, and rounded. 
kind of like myself, I think. Oh, you can get the pungent, the smokiness. I mean, totally. Yeah. Not as much smoke as I normally like. And then on the tongue, full and slightly syrupy. I think I'm going to try it first and then do the wobble. I really like Talisker. Mm. Because I'm I'm less a peat than you are. And so this is enough yep. smokiness for me. And when you combine yep. it with just that oiliness afterwards, I want to just smack my tongue around like, yeah, yeah, I don't yeah. know why, but it's just oil well, sits. And that it's, it's thicker. It's a thicker oiliness. Yes. And so that's, I get the syrupy smoky and malty sweet. And I like malt. And you totally get the pepperiness. Yeah. Big pepperiness. Sourness. Did you get that? I don't get much sourness, but I also don't know what sourness tastes like in scotch. <laughs> I'm not really sure what peat and tastes like either, but that seems to be a big, a big dirt. flavor. And that's what it tastes like. Yeah. Dirt. That's a big mouthful of dirt. A, I, I always say purpose. a fire. A bonfire. <laughs> mm. Oh boy. Very peppery, huge, long finish. A, a, a single drop though, really kind of mellows it out. I'm not sure I, I like that. I yeah, I went no I drop. Actually, Andrew, I think you're quite consistent because if I recall, you and I tasted this honestly like six months ago. I think yeah. you said the exact same thing. The drop does not work with it. Honey, Matt said that I repeat myself. <laughs> what? <laughs> Never. <laughs> not this hour yet, but the hour is only 37 minutes uh. old. Well, one of the benefits uh, for gold level supporters on Patreon. Uh, did we get everybody? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we got the Fosters. Yes. Uh, we toast one of our Patreon supporters each episode, and today we are toasting Rebecca Brown. So, Rebecca, we all raise our glasses or cans or whatever to you, and we are grateful for you. We pray God's blessings not only upon your week as we record, but on the day when you hear this, and may those you love reflect the love of God in your life. To Rebecca, cheers. To Rebecca, cheers. Oh, that's good. It's going to be a good episode. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, Kristen and I are going to kind of drive a little of this episode, but we can't wait to hear you all jump in. I thought we'd begin by her talking a little bit about her book, uh, A Family Guide to Narnia, um, which is in some ways kind of how we met. So we won't necessarily go into that story, but I'd love to hear uh, some background on this best-selling book on the Chronicles of Narnia, which I never bought until after I met her. <laughs> wait, wait. At that point, you should get a free copy. <laughs> well, he kept trying to explain things to me about C.S. Lewis, and I was like, yeah, yeah, no, I, I know that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I've actually heard that before. The best part about that, copies later. Yeah. The best part about that is, is you try to posture. You know, when we're nervous or we're trying to impress someone, uh-huh. we posture a little bit, and uh, you can't do it with her. You couldn't do it. <laughs> well, the funny thing is, the first time we met over our contributions, uh, we each contributed a chapter to Women on C.S. Lewis, and uh, we were in touch online. And I said, "Hey, I'm going to be by, and and let's get together and talk about Narnia." And we were so fascinated with each other that it took us. I don't know. Was it this morning the first time we really talked about Narnia? <laughs> Maybe not quite that long. <laughs> so, uh, but, but I know. certainly respect her work and and uh, I love her story about how she came to write this book. Sure. 
Well, you know, my passion is first and foremost scripture and spiritual formation, you know, the process of becoming more like Jesus. And for me, a huge part of that was reading the Chronicles of Narnia as a child. And I read them over and over until they fell apart. And many years later, I would be in a crisis in my life. I would be trying to make a decision about something and try to think about, you know, what would Jesus do is the question we've asked ourselves sometimes or what biblical principle would come into play. And I would find myself thinking of a scene from the Chronicles of Narnia. And I think, oops, wait, wait, that's not right. <laughs> Until one day I really sat with that and thought, why why is that? And, and realized how many scenes from Narnia, from all seven books, are filled with scripture, either allusions to scripture, references to scripture, or are flat out parallels where the characters in Narnia do and say things that people in the Bible did and said. And it was a powerful a thing for me. Uh, later on, I had the opportunity as a teacher to read the Chronicles of Narnia to students. And there were so many teachable moments when their hearts were open, they were engaged in the story. It was a great time to ask some questions and draw deeper uh, from the, the spiritual truth that undergirds all of the Chronicles. Um, but I didn't have a concordance handy and I wasn't always sure where that scripture was. And that's what led me to begin, oh, gosh, 20 years ago now, uh, working on a book that would be kind of like, we used to call them cliff notes. I think it's spark notes now. But that sort of key parallels and principles for parents or teachers or grandparents. I mean, you don't have to, to be sharing it with a child, but many of us will. And, and it's just a, a great way to kind of find those scriptures and reflect on them and allow them to draw us closer to Christ, which I think honors. It's not what uh, Lewis started out to do. He's very clear that he wasn't trying to write Sunday school material. Uh, he wasn't trying to preach at anybody. But I think he couldn't help. Uh, he had so much scripture in his heart and mind. Uh, and he says the lion came bounding in and pulled it all together. And he began to embrace that and really uh, allow that scriptural truth to kind of permeate every story. Almost just about every scene in the books has some kind of principle or parallel that we can draw from. And and certainly the silver chair is, is just as full. I think people often make the mistake of looking at the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe and saying, well, I know that one has, you know, I know Jesus and dying and coming back to life. And, um, and, but they don't realize how much scripture is in each of the seven books and how powerful and relevant they are to our spiritual journey today. I was raised on Narnia, so I knew them all practically off by heart before I was a couple of years old. And it wasn't until my 20s that I reread them. And this one, I remember it slapping me across the face with the Gospel of John. It's like, oh, mm. all of this is Joanine everywhere. Yep, yep, yep. And it's Deuteronomic mm -hmm. and, and all the rest. I mean, it's just... And in preparing for today's episode, I looked through some of Lewis's letters and his things that he said about the Bible because of, of Kristen's focus in her marvelous book. And that book, I'm sure that we'll have a link. Um, she goes through every chapter of all seven chronicles and shows scriptural references and gives some thoughtful questions for discussion. And it's an incredible resource for, um, for parents. It's a great devotional uh, for any who are, who are engaged in this book. But Lewis said that he was reading the Bible constantly. And you can really see that pervading. So Kristen's approach will often be biblical, and I love that. Um, my approach as kind of a medievalist and a teacher and, and student of mythology will kind of be there. And The Silver Chair is one of those books that makes me claim that uh, if Lewis is an evangelist for anything, he's an evangelist for good reading. And in talking about this with my wife as we were prepping, I realized that the the book immediately before The Silver Chair is The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And what was the problem with Eustace Clarence Scrub? He hadn't read the right sort of books. 
But we see in the silver chair that even in the two weeks since his summertime and back at the experiment house, he has begun perhaps reading the right sort of books. Um, and I think that Lewis is giving us some clues in this uh, in the silver chair about what the right sort of books are. You find a hint of it with Peter in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where he says, oh, we can trust the robin. Robins are good birds in all the books that I've ever read. And so this is what I call... This is what I call an epistemology of reading. I think Lewis uh, thinks that we can trust our reading. And later on in Experiment and Criticism, which we may get to in season 23, um, <laughs> Lewis talks about maybe not so much the right sort of books, but the right sort of readers, right? A good book is what a, a good reader will read. Um, and I think that Lewis is kind of beating the drums for reading things aright. They don't read the signs aright. Um, they don't have perspective to see under me. Um, remember, too, that Lewis read everything to get away from Christianity, but his reading led him ineluctably, unavoidably to Christianity. So I'll be looking at myth. I'll be looking at chiasm, you know, as I often do and uh, seeing how the love of myth kind of pervades. And so we'll just jump in and, and, uh, and have a conversation. And I'll be taking it from the perspective of the pinky, and David will be taking it from the perspective of the brain. I'm just going to be trying to keep us on time. <laughs> oh, boy. No, 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 no. I'm ready for this to flow as long as it goes. Well, and I really, we were talking before, Matt, I really envy your first reading of the books. And to have them come fresh when you have grappled with the faith, grappled with atheism and come to faith um, and really embraced the, the, the diligent practice of Christianity. And to see these books crash into you uh, is such a joy for, uh, I think, for all of us. And I made a prediction when Matt and I spoke the other day when he was just starting to read. I said, I don't think you're going to be too involved with the first half, but there is a, the latter third. I think you're going to love it. <laughs> That's and yes, great. I mean, I don't want to spoil too much, but sometimes it's nice to give a little bit of teaser. So my my overall, before we dive into unpacking this, you're exactly right, David. I got to that last third, that last half, and one, I was thinking to myself, this is so much to screw tape letters. And of this journey, this adventure we're on, we're all called God's place in our hearts, this mission and this purpose of who we're meant to be and to know who we are. Because I remember when uh, Prince Rillian says... I had, he'd forgotten his name, but he remembered who he was. We're given this identity, but then the world challenges it. And so much, we get these enchantments, these distractions, these comforts that try to pull us off that journey. And that's all what Screwtape Letters is. And I've experienced it firsthand. I've been very vocal about it on this podcast with listeners. And so to see that here, but then to see the beauty of Aslan still being with them, pursuing them, I thought was a very beautiful image despite them honestly failing or falling short at various points of the way. And so, listeners, I loved this. I thought there's a lot here that I can't wait to share. That's just a little bit of a teaser. But, yeah, this is a really beautiful message that particularly hit me at this season in my life and right after we went through the Screwtape Letters. Hmm. Hmm. When I did the talkbacks for Screwtape Letters for Max McLean's Screwtape on stage, uh, people would often ask why um, Max's adaptation was so fresh. And I would say it's because of all the changes that he made to make his his uh, play contemporary. He changed one word. <laughs> he changed air raid to terrorist attacks. And uh, I think that Lewis feels so fresh and so contemporary. And that's, I think, part of why he's such an evergreen writer. I mean, he wrote these books 60 years ago and uh, and here they are still. 
Well, shall we turn to our first half of the book? Let's do it. David's like, yes. (laughs) (laughs) We are five minutes behind schedule already. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Kronos, your book doesn't come up until the last battle. (laughs) I love it. So uh, chapter one, we've done a, I, I've done little summaries for each of the chapters. Uh, the first couple might be a little bit longer. Um, I'll take a whack at the first one and any of us can jump in on those summaries. But chapter one, Behind the Gym. Eustace Clarence Scrub, having returned to Experiment House after his summer and his conversion uh, in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, has begun to be a better boy, as the narrator predicts in Voyage. He comes across Jill Pohl, who's also a victim of bullying by the students at Experiment House, and she's crying. He tries to console her. He tells her about Narnia, and then they are chased to an old door in a fence that it was always locked. And they try it, it opens, and then they find themselves, although they don't know it yet, in Aslan's country at the top of a very tall cliff. They are too near the edge, and Eustace loses his balance, falls off the cliff, and a lion races to the edge and then blows him down. So that's behind the gym. I'd love to notice, and I've used this as a lesson before, there's a fantastic uh, lesson in evangelism in uh, this first chapter. Always offer people peppermints. (laughs) Yes. Yes. But actually, the peppermint is not just the peppermint. He comes to Jill Pohl. She's blubbing. She snaps at him. He says, all right. And he begins to, you know, yell at her. And then he says, I say, Pohl, when he noticed her face, I say, what's up? So he notices somebody's difficult uh, position and then asks about her. Jill only made faces because she's trying to cry. And he says, it's them, I suppose, as usual. So he identifies with her misery. She nods, and he begins to preach to her, which is not a great way of evangelism. Now look here, there's no good, us all, blah, blah, blah. And he did talk as if he was beginning a lecture, and Jill snaps at him. Go away and mind your own business. And you're a nice person to say that. You're always toadying up to them. And look what he says. He says, oh, Lord, L-O-R, but he means Lord. And then he humbles himself. He sits down on the grassy bank. He comes down to her level, um, and then he appeals to her reason. Hey, haven't I been different? And she's beyond reason. She's sobbing. Um, and then she sees that he has lived a new life. She apologizes. You have done all of that this term. And people have seen his good works and noticed that someone has gotten a hold of him. Um, so... Uh, Then she says, hey, what is different about you? And Eustace has had a conversion and a baptism. What's different about you? Even in the two weeks they've been there, he's begun to be a better boy. And then he says, some strange things happened. What things happened? And then he asks this beautiful evangelistic question. Are you good at believing things? And then they call on the name of the Lord. They call on Aslan's name. And before many moments have passed, they find themselves in Aslan's country. So that's a good, uh, a good metaphor for, for salvation. 
I like though that even there, there's a there's a really gentle reminder. You know, Jill Jill doesn't know very much, and in her ignorance, she suggests, you know, are we going to cast some spells? Are we going to drop? What what do we do to get to connect with this spiritual being? And Eustace doesn't know a whole lot more than Jill, but just enough to know that's not the right way to go about it. I don't think that would please him. And and says, you know, we're not commanding Aslan. I, I think that's an important sometimes as believers, we jump through all kinds of uh, hoops and we do things that we think will make God respond to us. He's obligated somehow to show up when we want him to and do what we uh, ask him to do because we asked the right way or in the right spirit, or, you know, we were crying at the time and there was worship music or whatever. Um, but we, we can only invite him to come and open our hearts, but he chooses when and how he comes into our lives. Um, we do have the assurance from scripture that he's near to all who call on him, uh, but but it's up to us to learn how to prepare our hearts and to, to receive him in whatever way he chooses to come. Kristen, I feel like it would have been great to have you on these last two years because every time I talk about I go on this quarterly retreat that's all about creating these sacred rhythms in your life that open you up mm -hmm. to spiritual transformation. I mean, that's like if I had to boil it down to one sentence, I feel like now you've said two things already in this episode where I'm like, oh, she, she, yep, yep, she's on the same wavelength with that. I'm like, <laughs> how do you just create the space for Christ to form within you? How do you yes. create that opportunity? And I think that's just so much lost in the spiritual journey. It's, it's not what do we do to, like, we do X, we get Y. It's just like create space and allow him to work within you. Mm -hmm. And I just always, I've always loved that image and kind of metaphor. Well, and one of the great things, and I, I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves here, but one of the great things about the silver chair, we're going to talk about these signs in a minute, but they're given, the children are given three or uh, four signs to follow and they mess up three of them, right? 25%, <laughs> that's an F. <laughs> right. But still, Aslan's purposes prevail. And I find that so encouraging in my own spiritual journey. I screw things up left and right. I flub the signs every day, um, but I get it just enough right that his grace, his mercy covers it, uh, makes up for my deficit, and he still accomplishes what he wants to do in me and through me. Mm -hmm. There are two things I really like about this first chapter. The first is the fact that Lewis treats Scrub as an incomplete project. He is not done. As he said in The Voyage of the Lontreda, uh, he had relapses, but the cure had begun. And you see that yes. in his faltering evangelistic attempts with Jill. He starts down the road of giving her a lecture, and then he gets a little bit of humility. Uh, and the other thing that I love about this first chapter is I hated school, and I longed to be anywhere other than there. And I've read in commentaries, people think that this is heavily drawn from Malvern College, where Lewis was. There were also hills in the distance that Lewis longed to be in rather than uh, with the bullies in school. And so th those, those are two things that I, that I love in, the, in this chapter. We, we see Eustace isn't done yet. He's, Jesus isn't finished with him yet. Uh, and we also see that they want to get out of school as quickly as possible. Well, and I love the transformation in him that he had been sucking up, toadying up to the, the people in power, to the inner ring the, of membership. And even in the two weeks under torture, he has already begun to live out his faith. And so it's always a good time to begin to live into our conversion and, uh, and, and to act accordingly. Well, fortunately, my summaries for the rest of the chapters are a little bit shorter, um, and certainly we could spend uh, all of our time on any one of these. But let's go to chapter two. 
Jill is given a task. Who wants to read that summary? I got that. Distraught, Jill weeps, meets Aslan, gives her a task in the four signs, blows her down to Narnia, where she meets Scrub. So this chapter is one of our favorites. Oh my goodness. And yeah, you we talked about this from the very first. Go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. Well, here here we have Jill in her first encounter with Aslan and she's dying of thirst. And when she meets uh, the character who is is the representation of the living water, right? Jesus said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. And there... Oh my goodness, there's just such a powerful example there. She's afraid to come. Uh, he won't promise her safety, right? He won't promise uh, and he won't go away. She's got to make a choice. Um, but as she gets nearer, you know, she she thinks about, well, maybe I'll find another stream. Wasn't that our, our opening quote? Well, yes. <laughs> and he says, there is no other stream. So this is your choice. You can, uh, you know, you can die of thirst uh, or you can, Step closer and trust the lion and receive that living water. And it's going to change your life. It's going to turn it upside down. Uh, you know, her agenda, her plan, whatever she thought was going to happen, totally out the window. It set her on a completely different course. But what an amazing course and, and how encouraging that is uh, for us today. And of course, it's an echo of um, Jesus said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And isn't that during a festival where there's some water being poured or something? So. Is it the Gospel of John where Jesus says, from my heart flow streams of living water? Mm -hmm. I can't remember if that's, that's, I feel like it's John. It's one of my priests. John Ford, the Samaritan woman. There we go. It's one of my priest um, mentor friends. It's like he had an icon created for himself. And that's like the verse that lives his life out of. It's in Kristen's book. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, am I... I was a little intimidated to bring that up because I'm like, all right, the person who could easily <laughs> shoot my arrow down is right across the monitor from me. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It is in John 4. It's also in Revelation 22. Uh, whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. Mm. So. And it's the echo of Psalm 1 that we are like trees planted by streams of living water. And so these these metaphors are, are powerful. This episode is not, these two-part episodes are not not entirely designed to sell more copies of Kristen's oh, book. But, you know, but there will be we, links we, in the show notes. Well, I just, you know, I want to point out there's one other thing from this chapter that really resonates with me and and I think is relevant to us today. Um, Aslan warns Jill, he gives her four signs. Uh, He sends her on a mission and he gives her these four signs to watch for. And he warns her that they're not going to look like she thinks they will. They're not going to meet up with her imagination. And so she'll have to be very alert and she'll have to keep remembering and repeating the signs. I think about in the Bible, there are hundreds of prophecies about Jesus, the Messiah, right? But when he came, everybody missed it. It it didn't look the way they thought it was going to look. And I I have some friends, God love them, who are super into Bible prophecy and eschatology and reading the signs. And I mean, I had to take college classes on it. And oh my goodness, there's so many different interpretations of all of these scriptures. And and we can get really caught up in in how we think things are supposed to unfold. But the the important thing, we're not going to recognize some of these signs. We're going to be distracted. We're going to be overwhelmed. Um, They're not going to look like we think they are. And so the thing to do is to keep repeating them to ourselves, to keep in the word and keep in our relationship with Christ so that when things do unfold, when we're confronted with these signs, we can see them for what they are. It made me think of discernment. 
the one of the mm-hmm. lessons of those nine retreats I went on was discernment and recognizing and discerning the movements of the spirit in your heart, the movements of our heavenly father. And there is no silver bullet. It's, it's like, there's not some just blanket template you can apply to everything and just figure out what the answer is. As you move closer to God through the word, as you allow, as you allow Christ to form within you and your desires are transformed, you will probably become slowly better at reading the signs. With that said, the best thing that she said is, is this moving you towards love itself or is it moving you away in capital L love? And mm-hmm. that's probably the closest thing you can get. And I, I try to keep that with me whenever I'm discerning in my own life. Is this part of the adventure? Is this what I'm supposed to be doing? Is this moving me towards capital L love or is it not? Is it, as Andrew would say, is it taking me out of myself towards the other or is it turning mm-hmm. me within? And I always found that principle as much as, you know, there's going to be more difficult situations than that. That's a, at least something that can be helpful as like kind of a North Star. Well, and even you see Jill, part of why she's given the signs is because of her humility. And he says, why did the boy fall over? And she said, because I was showing off. You know, she's humble. And humility is the the seed of love. It's turning away from self. And Andrew, would you say that she's sort of an oral character as she's kneeling by the water and uh, seeing a vision of uh, a heavenly land? Everyone is an Orwall. Yes. (laughs) Would you like me to go through and show how every single ghost is an Orwall or a Psyche? No, you know what, David? I hadn't even thought about that. So yes, absolutely. That's fantastic. Footnote it and don't credit me. I remember that episode because I was not on it when you guys did your first ever recording and I listened to it. And David, you said something and Andrew's like, whoa. I'm going to take that and not cite you and footnote you. <laughs> <laughs> well, tr- true confession here. Andrew has has admitted that he uh, he had a shelf full of books on the Chronicles of Narnia and never read mine when we met. Oh, um, but I I may not have read Till We Have Faces until we were engaged. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Which there are some things okay to say for marriage. Yes. 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 Oh, the remind remind the listeners what was the time between you met and engagement. 17 days. <laughs> so it wasn't a long period. <laughs> we took a year to get to know each other. Okay. And yeah. and her parents got engaged after 11 days. So I felt like a slowpoke. Like, years ago. It was a little bit of a different world. People always say that but with me. Do. They're like, you're going to you're gonna also meet her. You're just going to know and it's going to be super. Because I'm always like, no, I've got a date for X amount of for a while. And really, I was, you know, my rational brain, they're like, dude. no, Matt, you're just going to, you're going to fall head over heels. I yeah. was 50. I, I pray it's not another 20 years. I pray it's not another 20 months. <laughs> Andrew, so. if I get that far, I'm just going to become a priest. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> well, become an Episcopal priest and then come back to Rome because you can marry or, or, and then come back. Or, or, yes. or, or save yourself a journey and just be Byzantine. Done. Ah, there you go. <laughs> so another thing about this chapter and the giving of the signs, Lewis does a lot of kind of flipping things upside down or right side up. We saw this with the Narcissus myth and Eustace, who uh, I won't go into it. Um, I think that it's significant that Jill is given the signs when Eustace is away in the same way that Adam was given the law when before Eve was, was, uh, was created. And so... I think you have a flipped gender here, and this is Lewis centralizing and empowering women, and we see that with Jill all the way through, but she's entrusted with the signs, um, and I think that's another biblical reference, but it's also, you know, Lewis is, is playing around with it. Well, in my own notes, I have chiastic journey, question mark, Andrew will probably talk about this. 
<laughs> no, Andrew will never shut up about this. <laughs> because because, really because we start off in Aslan's country, they then go down to Narnia, they then go down a little bit further, and then we have a reascent. Yes. Yeah. Well, and it's Augustine. also the hero's journey, right? That goes down to the underworld and comes back. So if you look up Joseph Campbell and the monomyth. I was just going to say oh. Joseph Campbell. <laughs> yes, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, no. Uh, I, if you look I, I, up. That was it. I that was all he had. Like, Joseph Campbell. <laughs> yeah, that's all I was <laughs> going to say. <laughs> yeah. No, it's powerfully present here. I'm trying to posture as if I know, even though I've never actually read Joseph Campbell's book, but I do know he wrote a book of all the hero's journeys. That's about the extent yes. of it. Yeah. Hero with a thousand faces. And you can find those patterns just about everywhere. So, so much for chapter two. I think we'll probably finish this uh, this podcast on these two uh, two halves by sometime in the late fall. Um, but <laughs> hopefully, though, hopefully, though, honestly, I'm loving this conversation already. So, I hope listeners, you guys, because this is definitely going to go over an hour, and you know what? Who cares? Like, I feel like if it's I've, I listen to two hour podcasts, honestly, and whenever it's a good speaker, I love it. I want more. I don't want less. I don't want it to stop. Now, if it's like a boring, of course, yeah, you just want it succinct and close. But I don't think this is boring. Well, and I think that uh, our prayer beforehand and our willingness to be used by the Holy Spirit in the power of our imaginations and creativity, such mm -hmm. as it is for the four of us. You know, one of the Slack users just commented about the thing about the ear and the thumb, <laughs> the comment, and then he said, that's the best thing I've ever heard in a podcast is the episode that you and I did for uh, Screwtape Proposes a Toast, Matt. Yes. And I didn't even remember making that comment. So um, I was just looking forward to hearing you all spark on these books. Andrew, I listened back to all of our episodes and I think to myself, man, Andrew said a lot of smart stuff in that one, but I don't notice it in real time because my only thought is how do I respond to this to keep the conversation going? You can't be like truly present when you're recording. I'm like, dang, Andrew really brought it that time. It's, a, it's okay. You can gasp in my presence, Matt. You know, I, it's all right. So many do. <laughs> Maybe Gasp not. and exasperation. <laughs> wow. Oh, chapter three, the sailing of the king. Okay, I'll 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 take this summary. Okay, and you can fill it out. I just kind of shorthanded it, so Gotcha. Know. Well, Eustace arrives in Narnia and he sees a king sailing away. Uh, and then Glimfeather arrives, Glimfeather the Owl, and he brings them to, well, crabs and crumpets, Trumpkin. And uh <laughs> The children squabble, assigning blame. Jill tells them about the signs, uh, but a little bit too late. And then they feast, and then they go to sleep. Good. After Trumpkin makes sure that they're well bathed. <laughs> <laughs> One thing I want to say about Lewis and his Narnia books, it's all the food talk. I, I can't mm -hmm. read Narnia unless I've got a snack to hand. Mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. he always describes all of the meals in great detail. I think this is probably a symptom from writing these books while they were still rationing in England. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and then remembering meals that he liked. And then he talks a lot about meals um, in his diary in All My Road Before Me. And he grumbles frustratingly about how he and his brother wanted a cold luncheon at one. And his father had a hot joint at 2.30, uh, a joint of, of meat. Thank you for explaining that. Yes. Um, <laughs> And so, and then somebody once uh, said to him that I think that your Narnia books are walk, walk, eat, eat books. <laughs> and he said, that's not anything psychological. I wasn't trying to, you know, put them in because I wasn't going to give them sexual pleasures. He said, I like walking and I like eating. And so he was certainly a man who enjoyed his food. Basically a hobby. And yeah, David, that's, yes, yes. 
uh, meals, lots of them, uh, lots of meals when uh, what two breakfasts when you can get them. Um, and that's one of the things I love the most about literature is the is food. And sometimes I'll reread uh, a book. I reread Grapes of Wrath just about every year. And sometimes I'll just read the food bits, you know, the stories of the of eating pork or the candy that they get. Or whatever. You should hear him go on and on about the Farmer Boy by Laura Ingalls Wilder oh. in the Little House on the Prairie series. And then Almanzo tucked his napkin deeper into his blouse and he began to eat pie. <laughs> and once he began to eat pie, he wished that he had eaten nothing else. Yes, I have several literary cookbooks and I've tried them all. We're, we're recording over dinner time. I haven't eaten dinner, guys. You're killing me right now. My stomach is growling. Oh my goodness. Uh, I did love though in here that Eustace, he's like telling the king, it's Eustace. He's useless? <laughs> Lewis's humor, I love when it works through there. Yeah. And it's not far from the truth. I know. Which honestly, like if you think back to the show we've talked about that that new TV series Chosen, like we are mm-hmm. all kind of to some degree useless, but then Christ chooses us and still uses us to some degree. Mm-hmm. But it's not because he's choosing us or we're chosen due to our great gifts and our many splendors. It's like we're we're kind of worthless without him, but then he uses us in his own way because of his grace and strength. Which, I mean, Eustace is kind of useless, but somehow is used, and somehow it comes to the end that Aslan wants. Well, we hold this treasure in jars of clay, right, in earthen vessels. And um, God creates all of these vessels and creates us for noble purposes. And I think when we say yes to the Lord, it's remarkable what kind of good things may flow out from us. And, uh, And I think that it's that kind of fundamental yes that's the starting point each day. I would point out, though, in this chapter, Eustace isn't really on form. You can tell he is kind of irritated that Jill tried to kill him. Uh, yes. <laughs> just, a, just a little. Uh, and, and that has bad consequences. They, they missed the first sign. Yes, they certainly did. And you can see this kind of humility and pride, and they take themselves way too seriously. Uh, in fact, wasn't it Chesterton who said, the reason that angels can fly is because they take themselves so lightly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and one of the things that Screwtape wants to get us to do is to say yes to me, right? No nobis, not to us, but to thy name be glory is the cry of the psalmist. No nobis, not to us, not to us. And you see each of them kind of turning to themselves, um, especially Eustace and Jill. I didn't have a whole lot to add in this chapter, apart from just to point out that we hear about a blind poet who tells the story of the horse and his boy which at the time of authorship, Lewis actually had written it, but it was released after The Silver Chair. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a little self-referentiality. And once again, it's the right sort of books. And the blind poet, of course, Matt. <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> Legend has it that Homer, uh, the author of The Iliad Not and the, the Simpsons. Odyssey, not oh, the Simpsons. I was like, the Simpsons, that's a great show. I saw his eyes light up. No, no, not that one. <laughs> Although there is a Simpsons Odyssey episode, but that's a different thing. Oh my goodness. But Homer, the, the author of the Iliad and the Odyssey, the founding poems, uh, 800 BCE, BC, um, the founding poems of Western culture were written by this blind poet. And so that's, uh, that's a good 
a good catch. And it's also the right kind of story that the children are going to need to hear. Because what we already said about this story, Aslan is present at the beginning, at the end, and there's a brief dream sequence. But other than that, he's not present. Well, the horse and his boy is that on steroids. Yes. Yes. Good. Well, my favorite pun in all of Lewis's (laughs) chapter titles, uh, A Parliament of Owls. Um, Chaucer had a famous poem called A Parliament of Fowls. And so it's a group of birds that are having a parliament. And so, and he hates parliament because at the very end of this entire thing, he sends the headmistress of that school. She didn't make it here. She didn't make it here. So she worked all well in parliament. Remember that at the end of this, I was like, oh, clearly Lewis didn't like politics. (laughs) Not in, not a modeling college, not anywhere else. In fact, I think he's, he was elected to a two-year term as the vice president of modeling, I believe. And he was supposed to schedule meeting rooms and things like that. And I think he fell asleep during meetings and he did such a horrible botch up of it that they kicked him out after, after half a year. So yes, uh, bureaucracy was not his favorite. (laughs) So chapter four. The owls come to get Jill and Eustace in the middle of the night, and they tell the long tale of the loss of the enchanted Prince Rillian. The children decide to go on a quest to seek him. What have you got, honey? Well, you know, that seems to be the quest that Aslan has put before them. As they tell the story, this is something that I would probably draw out, especially if I were talking to children, but I think it's relevant to us uh, as adults. Um, You know, the Trumpkin is sticking to the rules and uh, and won't recognize that the children have been sent there by Aslan and that he should make an exception in their case. But then the Lord Drinian, uh, who is a friend of, of Rillian's, sees that Rillian is becoming enchanted by this woman. He's concerned that something bad is going to happen, but he keeps his secret. And as a result, Rillian is carried off by the enchantress, right? And uh, when if, talking to children about this, I would talk to them about when is it important to keep a promise or keep a rule? And when do we make an exception? And when do we need to break a promise that we make that's not a good one? Hmm. Um, when somebody that we love is in danger and keeping our promise to them is going to cause them, could cause them, uh, you know, harm. You know, we need, we need the wisdom of the Holy Spirit to help us handle that situation, but we need to make, be careful with our choices because, um, you know, it, it, it can be difficult. We want to be faithful to our friend or our loved one, um, but we also want to look out for their well-being. And in this case, if, if Drinian had spoken up, maybe Rillian wouldn't have been captured and taken away. Well, and the story Kristen's referring to is the kind of tale within the tale. And we're getting a lot of exposition in these these, these couple of chapters. So um, the wife of King Caspian, uh, who was the daughter of the star from the end of the voyage of the non-treader, um, the daughter of Ramandu, um, is uh, out amaying with, uh, with a, her coterie and she is bitten by a snake and she dies. Um, and this is a clear, clear echo of a couple of different versions of the story of Orpheus. And in fact, for an uh, undergrad research paper years ago, um, when I was taking Ovid in Latin class, I found passages in the Orpheus tale that Lewis seems to have translated into the silver chair. Some descriptions that Lewis is just swiping from the Latin poet Ovid. Tolkien did a medieval translation of, or a translation of the medieval poem, Sir Orpheo. And so in that story, uh, Orpheus's uh, 
uh, wife Eurydice is bitten by a snake and gets taken down to the underworld where Orpheus goes and frees her by means of music. And this tale is very, very much in Lewis's mind, although again, he's doing some flipping and some regendering. So while it is uh, Ramandu's daughter who is bitten and then dies, it's actually Rillian, not Eurydice, not the female, uh, who is enchanted and taken to the underworld. By the way, um, people accuse Lewis of sexism, and this is the clearest example of what I call inadvertent sexism in the Chronicles of Narnia. Because Ramandu's daughter, Caspian's wife, Rillian's mother, is entirely defined by her roles, uh, by her relationships to men, and she's never given a name. And I think that this was an oversight. If Joy Davidman had been on the scene a couple of years, a couple of years earlier, I think that perhaps would have changed. Uh, but that's the tale that um, that he's thinking of. I, I would just like to add at this moment, I, as a woman, I'm not offended. <laughs> <laughs> here, here. Well, well, Doug named her in the movie, so she got her name eventually. Oh, there you go. <laughs> When I was researching this, you I you did research. Uh, I know it's strange. Uh, I found a bunch of you did. Other... <laughs> What's research? <laughs> I found a bunch of other references. So Queen Lamia, she had an affair with Zeus, and Zeus's jealous wife then made her eat her own children. And then afterwards, Lamia then starts seducing young men and making her d- making them do her bidding. Is that Lamia? L A M I A. Okay, And in yeah. the Libyan version of that myth, she can actually transform into a snake. Not only that, Keats wrote a poem called Lamia. Spencer also has a woman who turns into a serpent. And if you've seen the John Waterhouse painting of this half-snake, half-woman kissing a knight in armor. Uh, and mm-hmm. even in MacDonald in Lilith, you've got uh, a, a similar transforming woman. And we're told that the White Witch comes from her line. And I even found in the Vulgate... In Isaiah thirty four fourteen, there's a connection between Lilith and Lamia. Mm. So okay. it, it is really literarily rich. Absolutely. Yes. Even even Eve is portrayed as a Lamia, or the serpent is in the Garden of Eden is portrayed as a Lamia. Well, and to quote from Silverchair, <laughs> and the lesson of it all is that those northern witches always mean the same thing, but in every age they have a different plan for getting it. Mm. All these villains, um, these enchantresses, these witches, uh, you know, the names change, the details change, um, but it's always, well, we were talking about the screw tape. It's, it's always this, um, this plan to enslave and capture the people of God and, mm-hmm. and to tear us away uh, from our one true love and, and to get us off track, to keep us held in bondage. And, uh, and that's certainly what's happened to Rillian. Guys, that's beautiful. So I got nothing and I underline nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and that's one of the things I love about the Chronicles is the more widely, when I came back to school in the late uh, 1900s, oh God. (laughs) (laughs) They had replaced all of the tablets with actual iPads before they had tablets. Oh my gosh. Yeah. (laughs) My cuneiform reads were useless by the time I got back to college. Um, but when I started, really, uh, I did a, a major in English and minors in Latin and medieval studies, mostly because I wanted to understand Lewis's contextual background of all of the literature that he that he knew. And I was amazed that the more educated I became, the more rich the Chronicles of Narnia were with references. And then theologically, as Kristen has mentioned, the deeper I go into Christ, the more I see echoes of what a Christian life lived should look like in in Lewis's writing. And so, uh, you know, I just owe him a great debt. So, 
Good. Shall we go on to one of Lewis's greatest characters <laughs> in all of literature? Definitely. By the way, um, uh, and I was so excited. I was reading, as one does, the Oxford History of English Literature in the 16th Century, Excluding Drama. Oh, hell. oh I just finished that book. <laughs> <laughs> I love that you everyone knows that's reading the title. <laughs> <laughs> but Lewis read everything written in English in the 1500s and everything in translation and all the rest. And so I'm reading through, and he just, Lewis can make the dullest author sound super exciting. And it's a wonderful read. Jerry Root insists on it as being one of the real towering books that you should read. I just read it for fun and it was fun. But I discovered somewhere in the pages there in 15th century literature is the name Puddleglum. And so I emailed Michael Ward and I was really <laughs> proud of myself. And he said, yes, I've discussed this on Planet Narnia, page 87. It's right there. So you can't stop Michael Ward. But I stood for not reading his book. <laughs> <laughs> and I would have thought from someone from your era, you would know all about the sticks. Oh, wow. David. If I put my hearing in hearing aids in, I would have heard that and really been offended, but I didn't. <laughs> okay, so Puddle Glum. The chapter in which we meet one of the most memorable characters in all of Lewis's fiction. He's modeled after the gardener at the kilns, Fred Paxford, who is an exteriorly gloomy, but inwardly full of hope. And having met Paxford out on the marshy, uh, the, the marshy moors, they prepare to go on their quest. So can you tell us the story? Where is Puddleglum in O'Hell? Uh, my book is 897 miles away up in, uh, and so no, I can't, but maybe, maybe one of your listeners has it. Well, I so. happen to know it was, uh, John Studley and he translated wow. the river sticks as the puddle glum. Oh, so you were tossing me a bone there. I was. <laughs> so the only okay. great thing I, I, a lot of good stuff, of course, in this chapter, but I got to say the thing that just like, Lewis's humor comes through in this one in the scene where uh, Scrub asked, does anyone know where it is? And Puddlegum glows, I don't know about anyone, capital A. Yes. yes. Essentially, anyone is a person. Does anyone know where it is? I don't know who anyone is. <laughs> That's right. It's hilarious. I love that um, That Puddlegum, you know, he, he's he has a, What's it comes across as a really pessimistic view, right? And and if we had anybody, it's well, it's the original Debbie Downer, I guess, right? It sounds like he he has a, a negative thought for everything, but but it's an important distinction that he himself is not actually negative. Uh, to his own point of view, he's just being realistic about the the dangers that lie ahead and what challenges they're likely to face, and that does. But interestingly. That doesn't deter him from joining the mission. He knows it's going to cost them something. He knows it's going to be painful and difficult, um, but he's still willing to go. And I, I think sometimes I grew up in an era, I mean, we keep talking about age here. I grew up in an era when a, a favorite opening line for evangelism is God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life right? It's going to be great. It's going to be awesome. Nobody talks about suffering and hardship and trial, which is a part of that wonderful plan for your life. Uh, and, you know, it can be quite a shock <laughs> to, to, uh, to come into, to realize how much it's going to cost, the cost of discipleship. Um, but Puddle Glum is pretty realistic about that. So I don't think we should be too hard on him, uh, even though he might not be our favorite uh, 
our, cheerleader. Our, our favorite. Yeah. <laughs> you know, every, every moment when we're, when we're in that pit of despair, he might not be the companion we would, uh, we would immediately choose for ourselves. Or will he um, be, as we will see yeah. later. There you go. Yes. Yes. But, um, but you know, that perspective is important. It's important to remember that there is a cost, um, but it's still worth, worth, uh, accepting the quest, accepting the mission. Well, he recognizes it's going to be good for him. This yes. is going to be difficult, but this will be really good for me. I am far too flighty. <laughs> <laughs> There's a, a feature in this chapter that uh, kind of comes throughout the Chronicles of Narnia, and it's a real gift, I think, to, from Lewis, the, the, the author. I think that he well believes that these books are going to be read to children at bedtime. Um, and just when things start to get scary... Very often, Lewis will interject a modern analogy to break the enchantment and to remind the children that it really isn't all that scary. So they're they're setting off to do this you know horrible thing, and then they're going to go see the giants. And by the way, Jill has read books about giants, so she's read the right sort of books. And they're eating, they're having eel pie or whatever. And uh, he says, after the meal, they had tea in tins. And then the narrator interjects, as you've seen men having it who are working on the road. And so he pulls you out of the imaginary land of Narnia where they're about to go, you know, perhaps lose their lives and pulls you right back with with a a modernist analogy. Um, And it also has... uh, one of my very favorite C.S. Lewis quotes. In fact, I think we, sh- we need to have the, more of these on hats and, and T-shirts and stuff. Um, and I can, you can use this quote for C- from C.S. Lewis. Jill says, shut up and don't be an ass. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm doing a quote graphic for that for the Instagram account. <laughs> Words to live by. Well, and you know what? If, if anybody, if you ever get trolls on your, on your site, you could just quote C.S. Lewis. Mm-hmm. You know, you know guiltily. I can see my future wife saying that to me, <laughs> just knowing my personality and how much I can just be like a logician and like reason my way and just say things. And she's like, shut up and don't be an ass. <laughs> Matt, darling, well, no, I need two no. things from you. First of all, shut up. <laughs> I realized I pulled my headphones out. So anything you guys just said for the last five seconds, I didn't hear any of it. So hopefully it was ah, good. It was great. <laughs> Moving on. Uh, the, the only thing I wanted to point out uh, from this chapter, I was shocked when I was reading this because one of the names sounded familiar, Ettensmoor. And I realized I had encountered that in Middle Earth. There is also the Ettensmoors, which is a slightly yeah. different spelling. Uh, but Ettin is apparently giant in Anglo-Saxon. Yes. Where yes. was this, Andrew, in relation to when the Fellowship of the Ring was written? Because this just seemed like a a um, simpler version of the Fellowship of the Ring, honestly, like this great adventure and then lots of temptation along the way, but they persevere through by the grace of God. They, you know, they, they certainly are kind of riding in, in, together. The Inklings have, have finished. They finish up in 47, I believe, 49. I keep rem- misremembering the date. But Hobbit is published in 1937. Yeah. And then Tolkien almost immediately, because of its success, begins writing what they call the new Hobbit. And he reads many chapters to Lewis um, mostly, but also to the Inklings. And the new Hobbit gets published 52, 53, and 54. That's the Lord of the Rings. Um, And Tolkien is revising up until the very last moment where he has to put the manuscript in the mail and send it off. And so it's during, and if, uh, if the Narnias are written 48 to 53, 
Tolkien is putting finishing touches on the Lord of the Rings, but Lewis has been hearing it in manuscript for the previous decade. Yeah, so yeah. he definitely would have known this story. There's just, there's, yeah. a little, it just reminded me of it personally as a new reader coming to it, who's obviously yeah. loves the Lord of the Rings. I'm like this, but it's important me. to know that that Narnia was never read to the Inklings. So Lord of the Rings was, um, but Narnia was not. So, shall we move on? Yes, let's do it. All right, the wild wastelands of the north. They begin their journey, see giants throwing rocks, meet the Lady of the Green Kirtle, and the Black Knight who distract them with tales of harfing. Let's assume I said all that right. <laughs> Pretty good. But this was this was the first point when I started to, I think I might have two underlines in the entire book up until this point. Because remember, I'm reading this not through the lens of the scholarly or the scriptural or stuff. It's just, how is this starting to impact my own spiritual journey? And it was the first chance we're there on this adventure that's filled with fears. And then someone offers them comforts to almost take them off the journey. And I remember underlining parts when they're describing hot beds and all of this stuff and the comfort. And they're like, ooh, and they're very drawn to it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think you're wise to, to pick that up. Here is one of, um, one of the examples of kind of liter- Lewis doing literary evangelism. Um, have you ever been driving and you turn on the radio and this, the, the, the song is, it's like halfway through a song and you don't quite recognize it, but you know, you know that song. In fact, you know that you have it on a playlist. I mean, or you've even downloaded it. You know, hey, this is my song. I just don't recognize it. That's the kind of effect I think that Lewis is going for, not that he drove a car that had a radio in it, but I think that by literary, littering, literary illusions throughout the book, I think that he wants people to recognize. So the Lady of the Green Kirtle is a prominent player in Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. And in addition to translating Sir Orfeo, uh, Tolkien also translated Sir Gawain. And that's something that Lewis read in, you know, when Tolkien did it. The Lady of the Green Kirtle is straight from that story. And I think Lewis wants to evoke all of that. Then you have a knight, a son, dressed all in black and an indecisive one, too, um, for that matter. And I think that he wants us to think of um, of uh, Hamlet. Um, so you have all of these different stories going on what, that when you read them as a teen or as, a, as an adult in college, you'll be like, oh, I've heard of that before. And I think that Lewis is trying to warm you to the right sort of books. He's showing us how to read the right sort of books. And of course, the best sort of books to read are the Chronicles of Narnia and the Bible. Which inspired them. I I think of, I had noted the scripture in Hebrews, oddly enough, um, maybe not one that immediately comes to mind. And yet the apostle Paul was talking to believers and he said, we want each of you to show diligence to the very end in order to make your hope sure. We do not want you to become lazy. Mm-hmm. And the, this is what we learn in this chapter is that Jill has given up repeating the bothersome signs. She's no longer remembering what she's supposed to be looking for. And instead, she's easily distracted. As you said, um, you know, there, she's offered these comforts, which seem a lot nicer than all the scary things that Puddle Glum has been anticipating. Well, <laughs> of course, we want hot meals and cozy beds and a roaring fire. And, and uh, isn't that how the enemy still comes after us today? He offers us comfort, which seems much much easier than the life of discipleship, of self-sacrifice, of surrender. And, you know, time after time, we we fall for it. Piggybacking off that real quickly, right afterwards, talking about everything you just described, it said you would think that it would have made them more cheerful. 
but it made them more grumpy, more cranky, more gloomy. Mm-hmm. And isn't mm-hmm. that so true when we think these things of the world, and I can be the first to attest to it, we turn to them, we think this is going to make, this is going to bring us happiness, this is going to bring us joy. And then you do them and you realize either you become a, a, a hamster on a hamster wheel, just running in circles, and you end up just striving for more and more and more and more. So you're always let down because it never gives you the feeling that you're actually looking for. Or you turn to the route that is what you described, adventure, discipleship, self-sacrifice, which on the surface sounds terrible. Mm-hmm. But you know what? That's the route that ends up bringing you the joy that you are genuinely seeking. And it's, it's very counterintuitive to us as fallen creatures. I had a question. What's a kirtle? <laughs> ah, a kirtle is a girdle is a sash about the waist. So uh, the lady of the green kirtle is wearing kind of a, a, a lace, a green lace belt in Sir Gawain in the Green Knight. So. can't believe I pictured that with no idea that that's actually what it was. <laughs> yes, the green lady. Um, Matt, I love what you were saying. You know, I, I remember in Screw Tape how the real pleasures are invented by him. Mm. And then, of course, we find in Lewis and Christianity his his borrowing from Augustine, who says who claims that that evil is a good thing perverted, a good thing out of place, out of proportion, right? And uh, it reminds me of the sonnet that Lewis knew so well: the expensive the, the, the expensive spirit in a waste of shame is lust in action, until action lust is perjured, murderous, bloody, full of blame, savage, extreme, rude, cruel, not to trust, enjoyed no sooner but despised straight, past reason hunted, and no sooner had past reason hated as a swallowed bait on purpose laid to make the taker mad. And he, he ends the sonnet saying, before a joy proposed behind a dream, right? And that's what happens with Harfang. You know, they turn to the pleasures of the flesh and beds and meals are not the problem. But their lust for them, instead of to do Aslan's word out in the dark and the cold and the difficult. It's easy to be a Christian in the glory of Sunday service. It's hard to do it on Tuesday when you're surrounded by difficult things. Mm-hmm. And that's, what I think, part of what we hope this podcast does is to, to arm our readers for Tuesdays. <laughs> in, ca- in, case, in case Taylor cuts out that clap that I was doing in the middle of it, this is slow clap worthy, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> that was oh bring it that is just like preacher just bringing it amen hallelujah well said the only thing i wanted to say before we go on to the next one was just to point out that uh the knight has no device uh he has he has no sign on his armor uh, mm. and that's going to change later so is it saying that at the moment his identity is in question yes. does he even know who he is yes Which i cannot wait till we get to that point <laughs> in the part two and our identify our identity needs to be defined not by the evil enchantments of this world, but by Aslan in his name. Yes. Mm-hmm. And that true name, uh, which is what we find out at the end of Till We Have Faces, <laughs> the name written on our forehead, the name of love. The Hill of the Strange Trenches. On their way to Harfang, it begins to snow. They fall into some trenches, make their way out, and finally get up onto the steps of the great house. But they have grown impatient with one another and, not coincidentally, have forgotten the signs. They come to the house and a giant gets puddle glum, a little tipsy. (laughs) (laughs) 
Don't you love though that we just talked about how this was Harfang was very much an alternative maybe proposition that was brought to them of comfort away from their adventure. And mm-hmm. right off the beginning, it's not as great as they thought. Right. And isn't yes. that just so true in our own spiritual lives? It's not like it's at first fantastic and then it becomes bad. Honestly, pretty quickly, it's not. you don't really get much satisfaction at all when you choose the route mm. of the world, the route of pleasure, the route of comfort. Like they fall into some trenches. They make their way out. They've got snow. It's, pretty, it's a bit tough. And then even then when they reach their destination, they kind of think, oh, I've made it. And as we're going to see a little bit later, where they made it was not that great. Well, it's the rest of the sonnet. Um, He says about lust in action, it's mad in pursuit and in possession. So had having and in quest to have extreme. It's so extreme in it's having had, you know, pursuing it a bliss in proof and proved a very woe. I feel like right. we're on the same wavelength right now, Andrew. I like it. We are indeed. It's a it's a fellow. It's it's a, like the false promise of of alcohol, um, which we see Petalgum falling for. Um, in in Othello, one of the characters calls alcohol. He says of alcohol, "It's a thief I put into my mouth that steals my brains." <laughs> With that, I think I'm having another sip of coffee. the exact same thing. <laughs> well, while, while you're having a sip, Proverbs 23 uh, warns us, do not join those who drink too much wine. Your eyes will see strange sights and your mind imagine confusing things. <laughs> what did you just say? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> And that's what happens to Puddleglum, isn't it? And he's usually he's usually on his guard. He's usually the voice of reason, um, reminding the children. Uh, he's the one that's suspicious. But but even Puddleglum is susceptible to the temptation, and and uh, it doesn't work out well for them. Well, I don't believe that he's necessarily um, skewering his own brother. Lewis had a front row seat to alcoholism, and his brother Warren, uh, unfortunately, was a binge drinker um, who often had to be fished out of pubs. And occasionally would go home to Ireland and drink so much he would end up in a hospital run by the nuns. Um, Doug Gresham talks about, uh, you know, kind of pulling him out when the when the the pub owner would call. And so this was, you know, an an unfortunate. Although the Inklings met over drink all the time, uh, it certainly can have an an unfortunate um, unfortunate uh, outcome. And I love <laughs> love what Puddleglum says. Um, the children stood up, a puddle glum remained seated and said, Marshwiggle, Marshwiggle, very respectable Marshwiggle, respect the wiggle. Nothing wrong with me, not a frog, not a frog with me. I'm a respectable. <laughs> well so. done. <laughs> nice. yeah. Oh, dear. So, yes, beware the uh, very thick flasks of, of giant liquor. So, the harsh, the harsh, the harsh of. <laughs> that was not intentional, was it? Respect the Respect the big one. Respect the big one. <laughs> I think maybe you're done, honey. Yeah. <laughs> so good. The coincidence of that right after your speech was just phenomenal. <laughs> yes. Great. Hey, Matt, why don't you take uh, chapter eight? The House of Harfang. The introduce themselves as being sent from the autumn feast by the lady. They're welcomed, warmed, dressed, and fed and delighted over, but they realize they had forgotten the signs and realize they must escape to follow them. So they play dumb to allay suspicion. 
Yes, and they are, have been sent by the Green Lady for the Autumn Feast, and they don't know what that preposition quite means yet. In my notes, I've I've put they were sent by the Lady of the Soylent Green Curdle. <laughs> Soylent Green. Soylent Green is people! people. <laughs> Sorry, spoiler alert. Now I was just going to say, and, and just fitting with this narrative I have created as I read this book, whether it's right or wrong, I don't know, but I still say it unashamedly. Uh, if this this is the whole journey, this this house of Harfang towards the enchanted other narrative of comfort and pleasure, and I just love in this how they realize they're going to be. Oh, is the cookbook in the next chapter? Mm-hmm. It is. It All is. right, Matt is getting ahead of himself, so I'm gonna just bow out here and <laughs> let someone else speak because I just about jumped ahead to the next. I, I literally saw a cookbook right below, and I'm like, oop. Nope, getting ahead of myself. Well, speaking of food, in this chapter we get another little section of Lewis talking about the cockleeky soup and hot roast turkey and steamed pudding and roast chestnuts and as much food fruit as you could eat. Ah, <laughs> yes. Well, and uh, I went to church with Walter Hooper, went to High Latin Mass at St. Aloysius at the Oratory, and then uh, this was in 2013. This was during the, the Westminster Abbey thing. And then I came out from St. Aloysius, walked into the Eagle and Child and had a delicious pint of stout. And then they had the whole St. Giles closed down for a, a winter holiday um, kind of market. Uh, yes, mm-hmm. exactly. And my breakfast was literally a pint of uh, it was the Holy. No, I didn't have Holy Communion. Um it was a pint of uh, of stout, and then I had real live chestnuts roasted on an open fire, <laughs> wow. and a pasty from the Cornish Pasty uh, Company. Live in life. Well, you know, in- interestingly, as we as we transition, they haven't yet run into the cookbook, which we were about to mention. But but Jill and Eustace and Pettiglum realize that they have. Uh, they've lost focus. They've been distracted. They see the lettering outside that reminds them of the sign. Um, they need to get back to their quest. And I, I love that there's, you know, the scripture tells us godly sorrow that brings repentance uh, leads to salvation. And, you know, there's a kind of sorrow over our sin that is more like self-pity, right? Um, we, Oh, I can't believe I'm such a terrible person. I can't believe I did this, which is more about our own being confronted with our own um, you know, our self-righteousness that in our pride that we imagine that we're better than we are. And we can't believe we're so horrible because we thought we were better. Right. Um, Dang, that's just an arrow to my heart right now, Chris. (laughs) (laughs) That's not really repentance. That's like, you know, yeah, it's being disappointed in yourself. Um, but there's the repentance that it is when we realize we have done wrong, we have gone wrong. And if we're, if we're humbling ourselves before God, there's, mm. there is still a chance to make things right, that we can be covered by his mercy and grace. And that's what the children determined to find out. Can they rescue their mission? Um, can they get back on track? Uh, if they're genuinely sorry and repentant and asking Aslan for help in a sense as they are, as their hearts cry out to, to get this right and to get back on track. And, uh, and they're about to discover just how important that is. You know, if uh, there's a model of evangelism at the beginning of the book, there's a beautiful model of repentance in this book. And they finally, you know, they finally say, uh, Jill says, it's my fault. And dis- she said in despairing tones, I, I'd given up repeating the signs every night. If I'd been thinking about them, I could have seen it was the city even in all that snow. I'm worse, said Puddleglum. I did see, or nearly. I thought it, it looked uncommonly like a ruined city. And that reminds us of Jill, or of, of Susan, 
who says, I did see you or I could have if I had allowed myself in Prince Caspian. Hmm. Is there another book that Lewis has written where somebody thinks that they saw something and then they start doubting that? Can you think of any? Yeah, it's The Great Divorce, which points to... There you go. Here we have faces. <laughs> you're the only one who you're the only one who isn't to blame," said Scrub. And then he later goes on and says, "I was too keen uh, on these beds," um, and so he's giving credit to someone else and taking blame for himself. And that's the proper way to talk about self and the proper t- way to talk about others. Well, they're confessing their sins to one another, and doesn't the scripture call us to do that? James, Confess James. our sins. In humility and and be honest with each other and with ourselves and and that's the starting point this is when things begin to turn around by the way all those recipes there's a narnia cookbook now the hardcover which i once had and lost is worth a couple hundred dollars but you can get the official narnia cookbook endorsed by douglas gresham for eight bucks on ibooks or kindle <laughs> and they've got wonderful recipes in there so uh, another modern analogy, the bed was not a giant bed, but only a big four-poster like what you might see in an old-fashioned hotel. So here's the narrator pulling the child away from this kind of setting of real fear. He also makes another interjection. He says, I know nothing so disagreeable as being kissed by a giantess. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to take his word for it. <laughs> yeah. I actually had a screw tape reference in this chapter. Really? Remember when Jill has the dream and she talks about the delicious smell? Mm. How many times did we, did Scutate tell us about this uh, this aroma, this asphyxiating cloud that we then encounter mm. in the final letter once again? And as the listeners kept writing to us, they say, look in Corinthians, it's the aroma of Christ. <laughs> yes, yes. And a smell of all sweet smelling things there there are filled the room yes wonderful oh that's great okay well let's uh we still have a whole second part to do and we still have one more chapter one more chapter uh with the cookbook yes how they discovered something worth knowing they discover a cookbook that shows the giants plan to eat them for the autumn feast so they escape and are chased and they fall down a long hole into the underworld what I was going to say in the last chapter until I realized I was jumping <laughs> ahead of myself yep. was how they realized in this cookbook, by the way, guys, that they are about to become devoured and they are delicious. And again, I kind of created this narrative that I was going along with this of the house of Harfang is when we give into that secular, the pleasure, those desires that kind of can keep us away from our own spiritual journey, our adventure that, that the Lord has set us on. The world, when we turn to the world for our happiness, our joy, for comfort, for pleasure, it will consume us. Mm-hmm. And I really felt that in that imagery that it will it will consume us fully. It'll consume our attention, our time. And as he describes in a screw tape letter, we'll get to the end of our life and realize we never lived like the way we were supposed to live. We'll have done things that didn't bring us the joy that we they thought they would bring us. And so I, I really appreciated this imagery. Well, and then you've got the question of reading again. So they muffed the sign, the memorized sign, but then they didn't read correctly under me, which meant to go under the city. And then because of their sin, they read a judgment of death in the cookbook, right? And so this is Romans 1 and 2 that says that, you know, you can see God's truth just written in the, uh, in the earth. 
And God's judgments are never gleeful judgments. God only judges us so that we can see how far we have fallen and correct ourselves, repent, turn to his grace, and then follow the signs the way that we should. Judgment is what they read in the cookbook, and judgment is always a gift of God. Well, I, you know what strikes me as, as we've been talking about this? Um, Puddleglum is part of the horrors of this chapter is they realize that children realize in Puddleglum that they've been served a talking stag, uh, that they have eaten with the giants, uh, and which, of course, is strictly forbidden for any Narnian. Um, it would be like eating a person, you know, and they're, they're horrified. And Puddleglum is afraid that they are now cursed. They are doomed. You know, this is it. And I have friends who who really wrestle with some of their mistakes and life choices and feel that, you know, I did such and such. And from now on, I'm cursed. You know, I, I, I'm out from under the blessing of God. He can never forgive me for X, Y, and Z. And what we see in the story and what we find in scripture is, uh, you know, yes, the scripture does talk about the curse of sin and death, but Jesus has broken that curse and we are no longer Amen. being punished, um, penalized for our mistakes. Jesus bore the penalty. Uh, he took all of the punishment. Sometimes we live with nat natural consequences of our, our sins, our choices, but God is always there to help us, always there to forgive us and to set us right. And that's certainly what the children in Puddle Glum experience. They have not gone too far uh, beyond Aslan's grace. Um, the yes, they've made a mistake, but there is forgiveness and healing. Well, and the Old Testament is full of such grace. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Slow clap worthy um, again. <laughs> Two in one episode. Not, excellent. You know, people sometimes say, well, the God of the Old Testament was a God of judgment and harshness, and the God of the New Testament is a God of grace. And that's balderdash. It's the same <laughs> God of love and grace. It's there's no separation between those two gods. And it's embedded in this promise that the sins of the fathers would be visited to the third and fourth generation, but the mercies of God are visited to a thousand generations. Mm. And sometimes we have these generational curses. We have these things, these sins, these shortcomings that we've inherited from our parents or grandparents. But the reason why is so that we can grapple with them so that God can apply his mercy to that generation and heal in reverse like you see in the great divorce, those who end up in heaven have always been getting there. And the, the, the gray town was a stop along the way. Judgment is an opportunity to come correct, to see that I have fallen, to see that I've muffed it and missed it, to own my part and to receive mercy that will last for a thousand generations. And that's always God's heart, you know, and you see that I think most clearly in the great divorce and we see it here as well. All I wanted to ask is, what on earth can you do to make a marshwickle taste better? <laughs> we never finished the page. Not eat him. <laughs> Not eat him. Yeah. So that's marvelous. What a great way, though, between your guys' both comments that were beautiful to end this part. Mm. Mm. Well, good. We're looking forward to doing our uh, our second part. And listeners, we hope that you have uh, have enjoyed this kind of four headed monster that we have that David has created here. Um, I certainly delight. It's alive. In, in and, and I'm going to throw on. this out here. I love the multi people dynamic more than two dynamic. This is just fun. <laughs> I think it's great. Hopefully, our listeners do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, with that, join us next time when we'll be going further up. And further in. Cheers. 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 Cheers.